0: following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. And this morning we'll be looking at Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Uh, We will also be um, Uh, as we look at the next and uh, this story relates primarily to the great commandment and uh, the lawyer recites it uh, that we're to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind and strength and love our neighbor as ourself Um, but this this command and living out this command is a bit risky if we really don't understand clearly what it means by keeping the law because the commandment uh, this commandment specifically, uh, Jesus says in other places, summarizes the whole of the law. Um, and uh, if, you're, you know, if you're pretty bright and on top of things, you should immediately think, well, I thought we got saved by grace, not by keeping the law. And as you read through this passage, it kind of seems like Jesus is saying, you, know, you can be saved by keeping the law. And for a lot of us, that should raise all kinds of red flags of, right? You can't do that, right? We, we don't get saved by keeping the law. Um, and that's true. Uh, but Jesus also does not chuck the law, right? And uh, he, in fact, expects this guy to be able to do this. Uh, and he doesn't um, waffle or cave in on the expectation that we are to be Doing this, we're to be loving God with all our heart, and we're to be loving our neighbor as ourselves. Um, so so how do you sort this out? Um, well, that's uh, so what we want to look at as we unfold this. What's the difference between keeping a law in a way that uh, is bad, and what does that look like? And and how do we live this out as people who are supposed to be somehow doing this? Um, well, that's what the 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 parable of the Good Samaritan is about. So let's kind of jump in uh, at the beginning of the story. And one of the problems with this story, uh, that um, people love the parable, right? And we like to jump to the parable, and it's a great parable, very vivid. And we like to uh, isolate the parable from its greater context. But it's very important that you look at the first part of this story, the first part of the account, of who's asking the question and what Jesus is responding and how he's relating it to the story. So let's start there. Um, uh, This lawyer comes, and lawyer here does not mean like we think of as somebody who tries legal cases, you know, who sues people, basically. He's not that kind of lawyer. Uh, This would be an expert in the the Torah, in the Jewish Old Testament laws and commands. Uh, Luke usually uses this term to describe the scribes. All right, so this is a guy who's not, not a lawyer like we think of, but he's an expert in Jewish law. Uh, and that's his vocation. That's how he makes his living. And that's how he's identified and known. And he comes uh, not as a seeker. Okay? He's, not, he's not coming going, boy, I just don't really know how to get saved. Jesus, please teach me how to be saved. Right? Now, he's an expert in the law. He knows the answer. At least he knows his own answer, right? And he's not coming to ask Jesus because he's confused or because he needs answers. He's coming to do what? He's coming to test Jesus, right? He wants to know if Jesus can give the right answer. So he says right up front, uh, Luke says, he's coming to test Jesus. So you have to understand his question and Jesus' answer in that context, right? Um, And then he asks the question, what must I do to be saved? Now, You're you're all bright, theologically trained, qualified, Christian-y kind of people, right, who know the answer to this question. If this guy came up to you and said to you, what must I do to be saved, how would you answer? You probably wouldn't answer like Jesus does, right? Well, just keep the commandments and you'll be saved, right? Because that's bad theology in our book. So how can Jesus say this? Well, It's very important that we understand his question, not from our perspective as a bunch of mostly Gentiles who are outside of God's promise and God's kingdom, who are looking for entrance into a relationship with God. That is not how this Jew would have understood the problem, right? Uh, The Jews were God's chosen people. So this Jew coming to Jesus identifies himself as one who is chosen and elect, right? So for the Jews, unlike us, and unlike most people that we work with in the world, we look at uh, salvation as something we need to go into, right? We need to find the door, and we need to enter salvation. The Jews didn't see it that way. They looked at it this way. We are born in salvation. We are born chosen. We are born elect. I'm in, right? For me, the problem is how I could get myself kicked out, uh, which they believed you could, right? And so he's coming asking, not how do I get in, but how do I make sure I stay in? Right? How do I make sure I continue in the promise of God as his chosen person so that at the end when I die, I receive the full blessing of God as his inheritance? Okay? Uh, and so that, that's, that's a little bit different twist on the question. Because uh, for the Jews, salvation really was something that was just to be lost. And as we know, in the Old Testament, it talks about their name being erased from the book of life. Uh, so he's just saying, OK, I want to make sure when I get to the end day my name's not erased. And again, he's doing it to test Jesus. And for the Jews, they all knew that uh, the way and they believed that the way you stayed in salvation was you just you know, keep your nose clean. You, you do the right thing and you don't mess up. And uh, they didn't expect perfection. But they knew that there was some kind of a line, right? And as long as I stay above the line, I'm good. But if I cross that line and I do something, you know, that's over, over the edge, that I'm going to bring uh, judgment on myself and I'm going to get my name erased from the book. Right? So that's really what he's asking. What do I do to maintain the salvation that is mine, promised through, through God from the Old Testament? Um so, so his answer has to be seen in that light. Um, and he wants to know what that line is. And now, Jesus uh, could get into a lot, lengthy debate with him about the law and about his theology and his, about his understanding, but Jesus, being very smart, brilliant, uh, just turns the question back to him. He says, well, you're the expert. You tell me. You know, you're the smart guy. What do I know? You tell me. How do you read what the Old Testament says? And uh, the guy says, well... Uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, In other words, that did summarize the content or the ethic of the Old Testament commands. And Jesus answers, um, correct, do that and you will live. In other words, do that and you will not disqualify yourself. Do that, and you will continue in the salvation as an elected, chosen person of God. When you die, you will live. You will inherit eternal life and all the approval and blessing and joy of God. Okay. Um, uh, so, so, this is where we start having problems. You know, wait a minute. Uh, I thought we were saved by grace through the work of Christ, right? At this point, somewhere Jesus should start saying, As long as you've trusted in me as your Savior and you believed in the work of the cross and you've repented of your sins, uh, right? uh, Jesus kind of skips that part. Well, why? Well, it's important to see here that Jesus is affirming the command, right? And what Jesus affirms and what the lawyer says is absolutely true, right? You cannot enter the kingdom of God without loving God and loving people. Right? You ever hear that? Salvation does not do away with the law. Salvation does not mean that you no longer are required to live up to God's expectations of what you are to be as a person who represents his character, his nature, and his glory. Right? But the problem is this. Uh, kind of it's a chicken and the egg thing, which comes first, right? The chicken or the egg, which comes first, the law or salvation. And of course, the Jewish problem was that they believed keeping the law came first and that by keeping the law, I would then be saved. And what we see from this parable as Jesus unfolds, it is the opposite is true. Jesus would say, no, you were saved so that you can keep the law. Right? Uh, it's a difference between earning salvation By doing the right thing versus demonstrating our salvation through acts that reflect the character and heart of God. Um, And the the reality is that that's a fine line. How do you know in your own life if you are doing good deeds to earn salvation or to demonstrate it? Now, of course, all of us in this room mostly, I would would hope, understand that you can't get saved by keeping the law. So for us. Uh, It's not so much that we are trying to get saved. But how many of us are trying to do exactly what this lawyer is doing? And that we are trying to gain God's approval. We are trying to earn the right for God to love us. And we're trying to do things in a way and live our life in a way that God will be happy with us. And you would say, well, yeah, but aren't we supposed to be pleasing God? Well, it would be hoped we do. And so that's something we are about. Um, But how do you tell the difference between pleasing God in a way that is manipulating him uh, by earning his love versus living out a life that's pleasing to him because of what God has done in us? So let's look at that. And uh, the lawyer is the example of a guy who's trying to earn God's approval. Uh, How do we know that? Well, the next verse, he says this. He says, but he, the the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? The the lawyer agrees with the answer, but the lawyer needs clarification. This is what lawyers need. Clarification. We've got to break this down, right? And it says that his desire is to justify himself. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, When we're trying to earn God's approval, when we are trying to justify ourselves, it means that we are seeking to meet the demands and obligations of the law in order to prove we are worthy of God. And to do that, we must reduce the standards of the law to something that can be measured. Okay, have we got that? when, When you're trying to earn God's approval, you need to know what the standard is. You need to know and you need to reduce it to something that's measurable. Um, And that's just exactly what this guy is saying. He he wants to justify himself. He wants to qualify the answer. He says, who is my neighbor? Um, uh, During my very brief one-year experience teaching high school students, uh, I had a lot of fun. And every time there was about to be an exam... Uh, I would get bombarded with this question every single time, every single time. The question was, what's going to be on the exam, right? What's going to be on the exam, right? And uh, there's this kind of unwritten code of teaching I didn't know about, but I found out about it really quick, right, that there's this contract between the teacher and the student. the contract says that you better not ever put something on the test that, you know, you didn't already teach or warn them about, Right? Because if you do that, it's just not fair, right? And, uh, and they will tell you all about it, right? Am I right or am I right, students, right? Because it's not fair. It's like, you didn't teach me that. How can you expect me to know the answer, right? And, and they also want to know, like, what's passing? Now it would be fun for a teacher. I think, I think a teacher should say this when they get that question. They should just say, okay, here's what will be on the test. We're going to cover everything that we talked about in class and everything you know. We're going to cover everything that's in the book. And just, just so you know, we're going to cover everything that's ever been known about that topic in the universe, right? It will be a three million question exam, and to pass, you must get 100% correct, right? Sound good, right? No, you go, no, that's impossible. No one could know all that, right? Not to mention it would take me the rest of my life to take the test, right? Uh, and who could ever be expected to keep it perfectly? Well, uh, we, we need to justify ourselves. We need to know what it's going to take to pass. And in order to pass the test, it has to be a test that's doable on a standard we can do. So, like, 100 questions, that's kind of the limit. You know, over 100 questions, you get sued, right? You're just a bad teacher, right? And, uh, and nobody can expect 100%. Now, there's those crazy people who get 100%, but to pass the exam, you've got to lower the bar a lot, like 60%, 50%. If it's really a hard teacher, maybe 40%, you know, is passing, um, well, that, this is what this guy's asking, right? He wants to justify himself. He wants to know, um, what does it take to pass? What do, I, what do I need to do to measure up and pass the standard so that I can receive and inherit God's approval, his eternal life? Anything less than that is just not fair. It's just not fair. It is unjust. Thus, he needs to justify himself. Um so, do we do this? Well, I think we do, right? And, and certainly this guy does. And the way he, he unpacks us, the way he seeks to, to measure up is he, he needs to do two things. First of all, he needs to make it measurable. He needs to reduce God's loss to something finite and limited and within his reach. He says, you know, I can't love, every, you can't expect me to love everybody, right? I'll never pass that test. So let's narrow it down to something measurable and specific. Uh, in our day, it looks like this. Um, people will say, well, how much do I have to give in the offering? Right? You hear that question? Do I have to give 10%? Uh, is 10% enough, right? Well, if I have to give 10%, but I gave 20%, will I get, do I get extra bonus points, right? We've got to measure it. We got to quantify what will make God happy. Um maybe it's uh, how many people do I have to share the gospel with or bring to Christ or disciple? How often do I have to read my Bible and pray and for how long? right? Is there some kind of st- I need a standard, I need a measurement to quantify if I'm measuring up. Um, how much time do I have to serve God? Like if I serve God from Monday through Friday at my job, do I have to serve God at church too on Sunday? You're killing me, right? <laughs> Sunday school, teach Sunday school too? Oh my goodness. Don't you know I serve God all week long? 40 hours, 50 hours, right? I'm a superhero. Don't make me serve God more, right? There's got to be a limit to this. Right? Um, what? And the question comes down to, what am I obligated to do? See, we start asking questions. What do I have to do? What, am I obli- what is my duty in order to make God happy with me. Okay? Um, I've seen this uh, in my own life uh, with my anger towards God. Have you ever been angry at God? Uh, and our anger with God is always justified, especially if we're living this way. Right? And this is how it worked for me. I was a poor rural pastor in in, uh, in the States, in Colorado, Uh working my tail off serving God and keeping track of every hour, right? And all my hard work for God and the sacrifices I was making for him. And I was just dirt poor, right? But that's part of, the, that's part of measuring up, right? Because if you're getting wealthy doing it, then you're obviously a bad Christian. So I was doing it being dirt poor. Uh, and I was doing it very much because I was trying to earn God's approval, I wanted God to say to me, Tim, you're my hero. You know, you finally measured up. I finally like you. I know I saved you before only because I had to, but now I actually like you because you're working so hard. That's what I wanted to hear. Right? And this is what would happen. You know, a, a, a disaster would come along. I remember one time, one of many times, I had um, engines blow up in my cars, completely, you know, completely die, and a five-six thousand dollar repair bill. And, of course, I didn't have money to go buy a new car. And what was my response when that would happen? I would be furious and angry with God. God, what are you doing to me? Right? I am killing myself trying to serve you, and what's the repayment I get? You break my car. Right? What's wrong with you? Right? And I would be angry, angry, angry with God and bitter and resentful. Why? Because God was not keeping up his end of the deal. Right? I was killing myself for him, and instead of being blessed, I'm being tortured, right? Where is God's love in all that, right? If you've been there, if you are there, that is a sign that you are trying to earn God's approval. You are trying to measure up uh, so that God will like you, so that God will do good things for you, so God will be nice to you, right? And when he's not, you feel cheated and ripped off and bitter and resentful. Uh, Second thing that happens, uh, it has to be measurable. But secondly, uh, we become uh, seriously focused on keeping score. Uh, We want to measure everything and we want to tell everybody uh, and tell God how good we are doing it. Look at how many starving children we have rescued. Look at all the churches I've planted. Look at how busy I am serving God. Uh, I was at a church that counted conversions kind of like notches in the belt. You know, just going out, knocking people off for Jesus, right? And uh, that's missing the point, right? And we'll see why in a second. Uh, if our If we have reduced the Christian life and our walk with Christ to something that can be measured and it's all about keeping score, right? we're missing it. We are missing the point. And it's not that we're not saved, but we, are, we do not get what it really means to love God and love people. Right? We, are, we have twisted the law and made it something uh, far less than what Jesus is talking about here. Right? And, and it's exhausting to live that way. Bottom line, it will wear you out living that way because you will be constantly discouraged and frustrated, right? Because the reality is you will never measure up, right? right? You'll never measure up. Uh, but there's a better way. And uh, and Jesus, Jesus answers the man, um, This way, he says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a teacher, a teaching pastor uh, was going down the road. And when he saw him, he passed on the other side. Teaching pastor, not a priest. (laughs) Changed a little. So likewise, a worship leader, when he came to the place, saw him and passed on the other side. But a Palestinian Muslim, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to a five-star hotel and took care of him. And the next day he took out 30,000 baht and gave to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Okay, I changed a few words in there, if you noticed, right? Uh, which really reflect the the content of what Jesus says in the story, um, and, and there's there's basically three things that are different about the way the Samaritan uh, responds to what he sees. First thing, he is moved by compassion, not performance. Right, the motivation of his life is not keeping score; it is it is being moved. Uh, deep within him with a compassion and a concern for a fellow human being who is suffering and hurting. He's moved with compassion. Uh, He is not worried about performing well. He is living out of his heart, not out of obligation or duty. He does not say, well, I guess the right thing to do is to help this poor guy. Um, Maybe I'll get something out of it. In fact, uh, he's a Samaritan. He knows that when the Jew finally wakes up, there's a good chance he'll, he, you know, he'll be angry that he was helped by a Samaritan. He's not looking for a reward. Right? He is doing it simply out of a heart of compassion. He saw the desperate condition of the man, and he felt something for him, and responded. Second thing. Uh, he shows a love that's without measure, right? Uh, he is not worried about the limits of what he does. It is limitless. Uh, notice what he does. He goes to the man uh, he, who's a, who's a dying Jew, uh, and he crosses all the cultural barriers that would have been involved for a Samaritan to help him. Um, the the priest and the Levite, you know, they pass by, and they I'm sure they had good excuses, right? We don't know what they were, but it could have been something like, I'm busy, don't you see I'm serving God, ministering, I got important meetings to go to. I'm on my way to an important conference I'm teaching, right? I don't have time for this. Um, perhaps they were worried about becoming ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, right? So they would have messed up their worship for the day. Or it could be that they were realizing, man, there must be burglars around. I'm going to stop and get robbed as well. It's risky, right? They all had great excuses. But the Samaritan pushes all the risk and excuses aside and a great personal risk to himself and a great cost to himself, he takes action. And his action is without limit. Uh, He binds the guy's wounds. He pours oil uh, from his own resources. He pours wine. You know, this is his lunch right there. Um, Gone. He, He probably rips some of his own cloak to make bandages, puts the guy in his own donkey, takes him to the inn, and the word that's used there for in is not just an average in, but it's an upscale in. It's a nicer place, right? A more expensive place. And he pays the guy, and then he takes care of him. He interrupts his own time and his own schedule. And finally, he says to the innkeeper, what? You know, when the, guy, when, when the bill gets up to 50 bucks, just kick him out on the street. He's on his own because I did my part. You know, what, what more do you expect? Is that what he says? no. He says, whatever more it costs, I will repay. Right? The sky's the limit. And by the way, what he paid, the two denarii he gave, would have bought lodging in this place for probably a month. Right? So imagine taking somebody to a five-star hotel and paying their bill for a month. Okay? It is love without limit. Right? He is not keeping score. He's not measuring it. He's not getting to a point where he's saying, well, that's all I can do. The rest, you're on your own, right? Thirdly, uh, this kind of love is love in action. Um, and it's true that the deeds and actions of the man are very measurable, right? Uh, the thing is, he's not keeping score, right? But it's very tangible. He doesn't just walk by and say, well, you look like you're kind of in a tough time. Cheer up. <laughs> Let me let me bless you with something. No, he does something. Right? He gets his hands dirty. He touches the guy. His actions are very tangible. And in that sense, they can be measured because they're real and they are uh, take the form of action. All right? So that's the difference. One is motivated by keeping score. The other is motivated by compassion without limit, without score, without measure. Uh, And that really just cares for a person who's in need and does something tangible to help them. Um, Now, uh, if you were a Jew hearing this story, well, actually, let's read on uh, verse 36 and 37. Jesus ends this way. He says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer answered, the Samaritan. Is that what he answered? Well, actually, no. That's not what he answered. He says, "Well, the one, the the one, who showed mercy." He cannot bring himself to say the Samaritan, right? Well, why? Well, because it was so offensive. Uh, to get to get the offense, you know, I, I changed. I used the word a, a Muslim, right? Um, and and maybe if you, if you read through that story and, and you think about a Muslim coming along. Uh, showing all this compassion, what would your response be, right? Or a Buddhist monk. Um, is there some sense you would say, well, that's not possible, right? Not to discriminate against them, but we, we would have a theology that says, for example, the Buddhist monk, we would say, well, I could see the Buddhist monk doing kind things, but why would he do it? To get merit, right? They would tell you to get, it's to get merit. They would not say because they were moved with compassion, and there would be a limit, right? Because you only need so much merit. You can only get so much at one time. When I got the merit, when I got that covered, I move on, right? We know that there's something wrong about the Samaritan doing this. And this lawyer would have felt the same way. He like, this is just wrong. This is just, this is just wrong. Why? He said, look, if the priest couldn't do it, if the Levite couldn't do it, surely the Samaritan can't do it, right? Because that just does not add up. Why? Why? Well, because it's not who a Samaritan is. And the lawyer would be right. right? The lawyer would be right. It's not who the Jew is either. And it's not who we are either. And we, we recognize, and Jesus uses a Samaritan, and by throwing the Samaritan in there, he teaches a, a whole bunch of stuff he never actually has to say, right? Because he raises all these questions. And what is the point of the Samaritan? Well, a couple of things. One, uh, he's showing that compassion is not based on our relationship with the person. We don't show compassion because of what we will get back from it or because they're one of our kind or because they're our family. There's no limits to what kind of people we show compassion to. In fact, we're to show compassion even to our enemies and to the most unlikely of candidates. Because they're people, they're human beings, and we want to show love for them. Um, But there's another more important reason, and and that is that uh, Jesus is demonstrating here that in order for this to really happen, it would have to be a very different kind of Samaritan, a very different kind of Jew, a very different kind of priest. And by the way, the, the lawyer would have thought, well, of course the priest would pass them by, right? Of course the Levite would. Because it would take a very different kind of priest than the kind I know to act that way. And that is exactly Jesus' point, isn't it? In order to carry out the great command to love God and love people like is described in this parable, it's not about measuring up to some standard. It is about being a changed person who just lives differently, whose heart has been so changed and conformed to the image of God in His heart that you just act differently and respond differently to the way life goes on about you and what you see, uh, the needs around you. And that's that's what the story's about, right? If you want to love God and love people, the only way to do that is that God gives you a different kind of heart. He radically changes you so that you just respond naturally because you can't help it because it's your heart. Uh, So how do you become that different kind of person? Does anybody want to be that different kind of person? I hope so. I hope it's the longing of your life to be a person who just naturally does nice things. Right? Uh, You just respond to things around you in a way that you don't think about it. You're just moved by compassion, and it drives you into action. And before you know it, you've done things you didn't even think about, right? It's just automatic. How do you get to be that kind of person? Uh, Well, I think two simple ways. First of all, uh, from this passage, two things. There's more, but two from this passage. First one, simply... We must experience grace. Right? The only way we can understand what compassion is, is if we have experienced God's heart of compassion for us. Um, it does not take a New Testament scholar to see in this story that it's a picture of God saving us. Right? Who are you in this story? Are you the, the the Levite? Are you the priest? Well, let's hope not. Right? Are you the good Samaritan? Well, we should strive to be that. But really, at the very beginning, who are we? Well, we're the dying guy, right? We're the guy that's beat up and bleeding, who on the path of life has fell among sin and death and uh, the wickedness of our own rebellious heart. And what is the consequences of our wickedness and rebellion towards God? Has it made us a better person? Or has it left us bleeding and bruised and dying? Well, of course, it's left us dying. Wounded, wounded people, right? Um, who's the good Samaritan in the story? Well, it's God, right? When God came a- along and he saw you lying in the road, dying and wounded and suffering and hurting and bound for death, what was God's response to what he saw? It was compassion. Right? God saw you. He saw your rebellious heart against him. He saw your wickedness. He saw your sin. He saw all of its devastating effects. And God was moved with compassion for you. And he came to you and he began to minister to you and to bind up your wounds. And he poured out the oil of his Holy Spirit and the wine of his word. And at 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 Total cost to himself. He paid the price for your healing and your life. Right? Ultimately, he sent his son Jesus through his blood to cover your sin and bring you healing and to restore you. Right. With no limit to what it cost him because he was moved by compassion for you. Uh, take just a minute, and uh, if you want to close your eyes or not, but just just think for a minute. Um, right now, what are some of the wounds in your life, right? Um, maybe from your own sin, maybe from the sins of others, things that, that cause you deep inward pain, feelings of rejection or shame or guilt or depression or fear, um... Things that people have done against you that have hurt you deeply. Um, Just for a moment, can you can you picture Jesus coming to you, and all your rage and uh, tirades and anger. And 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 he, as a Samaritan, as one who we we were not kind to, but he comes and he meets you there, and he binds your wounds. And he, through the the work of Christ on the cross, uh, longs to heal and care for you, right? He wants to touch your life, and he wants you to experience compassion, right? His compassion, his heart for you. You know, we know that salvation is a fact, but do we experience it, Right? Do we daily experience God's compassion for us? We will never be compassionate people until we begin to experience and encounter his compassion. Um, Have you ever been completely undone by the realization of how much God loves you? It should undo us if we really understand it. And it should undo us and it should heal us and make us new people. So first thing, uh, first thing, we must experience God's compassion, right? And certainly he has saved us. It's a reality, but we need to walk in that reality. Second thing, real quickly as we close, I think we, we need to begin practicing compassion. Jesus says to this guy, uh, you know, he says, uh, who, who, who is the neighbor? And the guy says, the guy that showed mercy. And Jesus says, go and do that. Literally, he says, go and do mercy. Right? Now, does Jesus expect that this will save the guy? Well, at some level, yes. And here's why I think that. Because practicing mercy gives us also a way to experience God's mercy and get a picture of what it is, right? Uh, when, when we go out and we try to love people like God does, meaning we don't keep score, meaning we don't expect anything back, Meaning, we find people who are our enemies, or who at the very least don't like us, right? Or really probably won't return the favor, right? And we go out and we see their need and we're moved with compassion for what we see, and we respond by taking action. When we do that, we start to get a picture of how God must love us, right? Uh, In my own life, uh, as I have become a father and become a grandfather, and uh, I've had the opportunity to love these stinky, crying little babies, right, who do nothing but make messes and scream and, and eat, right? And uh, you realize that there's, there's not a lot of return in the deal, right, initially, right? Um, but you, you see their need and you meet that and you, you love them, right? You pour into their life. And you start to realize, you know, if I could do this, how much more could God do this for me? Right? As we practice compassion, if this guy were to go out and do what Jesus said, he would come to understand something of the heart of God. That this is who God is. And this is the way God operates. Um, and as we walk in that, we we grow our heart in the way of compassion, right? Uh, If I can encourage you to do two things this week uh, to practice this, it would be simply this. First of all, take some time this week uh, to reflect on how much God loves you. And really, I think this should be something part of our daily walk with Christ. I don't know about you, but I need this every day. And you might think, well, that sounds awfully self-serving, Uh, But it's not if we come to God in humility, acknowledging that we don't deserve it. I do not deserve this kind of mercy and compassion. But I don't know about you, I need daily to remind myself and to grow deeper into the knowledge of God's heart and compassion for me. Um, Secondly, uh, find some ways this week to start practicing random acts of kindness. Uh, Find... Practical, tangible ways to do something nice for someone who can't pay you back, who maybe doesn't even know what you do, right? Uh, And start being intentional about practicing mercy. Now, next week, we're going to look more at what that looks like, and we'll um, spend some time on the practical side of what it means to help hurting people. But find simple ways in your life every day to practice that.